Today I sit down with Brian Rose for a conversation that I am very proud of. This was a free-flowing, excellent, powerful conversation that allowed me to ask Brian some very important questions. He described elements of his leadership philosophy, and he talks about his censorship battle with big tech over the course of COVID-19 pandemic. We also talk about his integration journey after he left Soltar Healing Center after his retreat here and began his 18-month integration journey in London while he produced the film Reconnect, reconnectthemovie.com, which I would recommend watching. It's on my website at danielcleland.com. This conversation is amazing. If you're an entrepreneur, a budding entrepreneur, or basically anybody who is vaguely involved with leadership, this is a conversation for you. So please enjoy, because here it comes. Welcome to the Daniel Cleland Podcast. I am Daniel Cleland. My guest today is the infamous Brian Rose. Brian is a man you've probably seen on his media platform, London Real, interviewing some of the world's top luminaries in a range of subjects from health and fitness, psychedelics and spirituality to politics. Brian has produced three full-length films, correct me if I'm wrong on that, Inside the Shadow, Iron Mind, and the recent film Reconnect, which featured Brian Stay right here at Soltara Healing Center uh, and his subsequent integration process upon his return to London, UK, where he lives. He started his broadcasting adventure in 2011 and has now reached hundreds of millions of views. Am I correct in saying that? Millions of followers, big channel, people call him the Joe Rogan of Europe. In the last few months, Brian has had an interesting battle with big tech platforms regarding censorship of his media content that simply came from guests who proposed alternative viewpoints on the pandemic science and the actions that were taken by governments around the world to prevent the spread of this annoying COVID-19. And today we're going to talk about all that. We're going to talk about Brian's new campaign to run for mayor of London, UK, which is really exciting. I'm happy for him. Ladies and gentlemen, my friends, please welcome to the Daniel Cleland podcast, Mr. Brian Rose. Brian, how are you, sir? How are you doing? I'm great, man. So glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, look, I just appreciate everything you do, Daniel. You know, my time in Soltara, uh, I guess it was two years ago, um, was game changing for me, you know, and it really put me on the path I am today. Uh, and maybe we can talk about that later, because I think if it wasn't for that second ceremony in Yarmulka, I don't think I would be running for mayor. And I don't think I would have had the year we've had here uh, fighting censorship. And I still have my hero's journal right here with me, which I got at your uh, place. And for people that don't understand, this is kind of the integration journal slash diary slash everything that you get when you go to Soltara. I think there's an upgraded version since, but um, a really powerful piece of IP. And yeah, you guys do an amazing job down there. And I just appreciate you, Daniel. You've also been super supportive of us over the years. I mean, you came to our premiere in New York, you came to our premiere in London. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate you, buddy. So super excited to be here and congrats on starting the podcast. Well, man, you know, you're a huge inspiration for me um, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you could join me and I appreciate the favor because I know you're a busy guy and I know this is a new show and, uh, you know, 
you don't just do new shows, <laughs> you know, like, like it's, you know, fortunately you, along with some other really, uh, really inspiring, uh, people who are connected to me through Soltara, um, have, have helped me out to kind of have this big, you know, 12 episode launch at the beginning with people who I would normally never get if it wasn't for, you know, this kind of, uh, connection to Soltara. Um, and, in terms of support, man, like I still feel greatly indebted to you because you have literally been behind us since you came here in July of 2018 and had your experience, you know, it took what, 18 months for a reconnect to launch. But, um, I mean, in the meantime, you were putting out videos with Dorian advertising his retreats. You were doing video, uh, blogs about us. And you've been nothing but support. So anything that I've done uh, to, in support of London Real, I feel is pale in comparison to what you've done for us. And uh, so, you know, don't mention it uh, there. And, you know, watching you and your stance on leadership at the start of this pandemic has been hugely in instrumental in the actions I've taken throughout this pandemic in that, you know, I it was a scary time and it's like, okay, you know, we're obviously we're going to shut down for a, a period of time, months. I don't know how many months, you know, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how much it's going to hurt, but, um, you know, my approach, and I wrote about this in my new book, 12 laws of the jungle, um, which is about entrepreneurship. I wrote about you and I referenced you a few times and how much, you and your stance on leadership at the start of this pandemic inspired me to keep driving forward and producing things. So, you know, I might not have been able to run Soltara during this time, but I spent the whole pandemic writing a book. You know, we got a manuscript done in six months or seven months, um, which is kind of like a play-by-play -play live action uh, journal of, of how an entrepreneur is dealing with the COVID pandemic. Um, and, you know, just watching you and your show and everything like that inspired me to, to put the effort into starting my own show, which is not an easy feat as you would know. Um, and, you know, just basically cultivating that leadership mentality when, when other people are running away from the bullets, you run toward the bullets. And, you know, that's, uh, that's a really, uh, respectable, Thing. So I want to talk about some of your leadership uh, philosophy, some of your entrepreneurial philosophy. I want to talk about your mayoral campaign. Um, but since we kind of started on Soltara, why don't you discuss the film Reconnect, how that whole kind of journey has been producing the film? You know, you came here, you were expecting to have something out really quickly, but it ended up, you know, taking a lot longer because you were just kind of going through this process of integration and, um, you know, and, and, and how did that process transpire once you like throughout the whole thing? How was all that? Yeah. So it's a great question. So just a little background for, for anyone who doesn't know the whole story. Nine years ago, I left my career in banking that I had been in, in London for about nine years and, uh, inspired by Joe Rogan, I started to start my own podcast and I called it London real. And, I started having conversations. This is in 2011 when not many people were doing this. And um, most people thought I was insane. And um, my friends and family thought I was crazy. 
but I just really caught the bug for broadcasting. And I just would have these long form conversations, unedited, unscripted, uncensored, and I would publish them every week. Um, you know, this is before Instagram. This is, you know, really early days. Um, and that's why I also love when I see people starting their own podcast like you and I want to support them. I actually teach broadcasting in my academy. So right now I've got about 100 students doing exactly what you're doing, starting podcasts from scratch. And um, they're, they're scared. They don't know what to do, but they feel a calling because it, it, it'll change your life. So, you know, I've been broadcasting and, you know, over the years we had some great conversations with people like Dorian Yates. And for some of the key people, we decided to make movies with them. So, you know, funny enough, Dorian invited me to come down to Spain and spend a week with him. And we turned that into our first documentary film called uh, Inside the Shadow and premiered it here in London at BAFTA. And we started going on this kind of quest to make films. And um, we made tons of mistakes. We didn't know what we were doing, but I think our the heart was there, you know, the the the... the kind of the philosophy was there and, and the, the genuine desire to kind of tell someone's story. So uh, we actually made a few films. Uh, next, we went to Israel and filmed with Ido Portal, the movement guy who trains Conor McGregor. And then I uh, went up to Scotland to film with my one of my high performance mentors, Dan Pena, the $50 billion man, now the trillion dollar man. And uh, then I was filming a movie called Iron Mind, where I got challenged to do an Ironman race at age 47 on a plant-based diet. And I had just finished running that race and we were still doing post-production on that film when uh, Dennis McKenna, uh, our mutual friend, came calling me and said, Brian, I think you should go to Costa Rica and go drink some ayahuasca. And uh, it was the worst time. I was still pretty thin because I had been training so much. Um, I'd just gone through a real journey of admitting some past uh, drug addictions and I had really come open about a heroin overdose I had in 01. And it was like a, a big revelation to tell my friends and family. My wife had never heard about this in 16 years. And so uh, it was time to go on a new adventure. And I, I went down to Soltara um, and it was incredible. You know, um, I got formed a relationship with Dennis McKenna and Dennis basically invited me to come down there. And I met you. I still remember meeting you on a Zoom call and, you know, boom, there you go. Went down to Soltara. I think you guys had just opened, I think. And it was uh, me yeah, and Dennis like McKenna. We were open for you. a couple of weeks by the time you got there. So, uh, yeah. So I think we came down there and, um, you know, had, had a week at Sultara and had three ceremonies at your incredible place down there. And it was absolutely amazing. You know, um, it was crazy because I didn't know anything about you, Daniel. I'd never met you before. Um, I knew Dennis and I trusted Dennis, but, you know, I didn't know what we were getting into. Little did I know we were going to probably one of the premier places in the world to have an ayahuasca ceremony. And I, and I say that. And the more I've known about you after that and the more people I've spoken to, this has only been corroborated. But you guys do an incredible job. You have tremendous respect for the medicine. You have traditional, you know, Shipibo, shamans. Your setup is incredible. Um, I can't say enough about you guys. And um, the integration process was amazing. You welcomed us in. And I brought a camera crew down there and we thought we'd make a film about this. Little did I know it would take us 18 months to finish the film. And you guys, you know, you know, you guys really stuck with us on that. And we created something I think was very beautiful and very genuine. And it really was the whole story of ayahuasca, which is not just about drinking some medicine and having an experience, but about integrating that experience back into your real life and the real world, which is ultimately where we all have to live. 
you can't live in an ayahuasca world. You have to live in the real world. And so I try to be really honest, um, really brutally honest about my own struggles with integration, with my family, with my business, with my parents, with my childhood trauma. And we told a really honest movie that I'm, I'm really proud of. And so that was my experience with you, man. And it's been a great relationship ever since. But um, again, I learned a lot in your Maloka in Costa Rica, and it really set up my future. You know, I would not be here today if it wasn't for those ceremonies, Daniel. I don't think I've ever told you that, but you know, that second ceremony where you encouraged me to do a double dose of the medicine was the most challenging experience of my life, was uh, the most inspiring moment of my life. I've never, it was incredible. Um, so yeah, thanks for that, man. Dude, um, it's it's a true honor, and it's very it's very gratifying and heartwarming to hear you say that. Um, I really appreciate it. I really, really do, and and everybody at Soltara really does as well. So, so you came here. You had this uh, big, massive experience. You know, we we did something we don't normally do, which was you know we reduced the medicine down to a, a very concentrated. Uh, a very concentrated uh, syrupy brew, which you which you drank, and it and it had a very strong effect and all that. We don't normally do that uh, for for people, although after watching your movie, people do ask for that stuff. But uh, that's it's a little too much uh, to do on on a regular basis. But um, so you had this big experience. You 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 know th- that like in your mind when you were here, it was kind of like well, that was over. Now you're going to go make a film about it. But then when you go back to London, it's like you just start like a whole new journey once you get back to London. So what was that like integration process like when you got back, you had some revelations about your family life and then you went back and you tried to implement those those uh, revelations about your family life and your wife, Marina and Marina, right? Mariana, Mariana, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, and um, yeah, uh, you 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 got into your business. So like, where did that push you? And like, what direction did that send you on? And what kind of like, it's like a hero's journey. You got back and you like went on your own hero's journey again after you'd already how many times done hero's journeys in your life. But like, how was all that? How did all that play out when you got back? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, if, if people are watching this that aren't even familiar with the medicine, um, you know, and, and also everyone has different experiences, but you know, when I go in, I always know it's going to be a really challenging night, but I also know that three hours later, I will be back to reality. And even though I might feel like I'm going to die and I felt like I died on that second ceremony 20 or 30 times, and it was very, very, very challenging evening. Um, and it really pushed me, uh, to, to ask myself some hard questions about what I was doing with my life. And, um, if I was, if I was playing small, and it, I didn't really put this in the movie, Daniel, because it wasn't as much of the narrative. But it was at I asked, I had to ask myself questions in that ceremony. Was I, could I be going even bigger? And it's a strange thing when you have like a show like mine, and you're making movies and having incredible people and hundreds of millions of views. Everyone tells you how great you're doing, but sometimes that stops you from being all you can be. And luckily I have a mentor like Dan Pena who is always saying I can do more and always saying I, I, see, a, I see a thousand times more. And in that ceremony, I had a hard conversation with myself and said, you know what, 
you kind of need to, to step up and do a lot of things. Um, I also saw things I wanted to do with my family and my business and my daughter and my kids. And so you have this big download and you have this big vision of the future and you're like, I see it all. I know what I need to do. And then literally 24 or 48 hours later after we went to the cloud forest, I'm back in London. I'm back in a city, I'm wearing a suit and I'm coming back to my office. And it's, it's, and then, then you get to realize that guess what? The world has a different time frame for your vision. And I know a lot of people struggle and sometimes the first six months after ceremony, they can actually sometimes go down. Um, and one of your you know, integration specialists mentioned this at Soltara because you, you get a little frustrated because you, you're not manifesting your vision. And at the same time, we had a movie to make about my ceremonies, but when we edited it together, all it was was some dude in his 40s having an ayahuasca ceremony, and that's not a movie. That wasn't a hero's journey. So we stuck it on the shelf, and my filmmaker, Luis, who you know, and uh, who's made all, all my films, um, uh, I said, it's not a movie, dude. And so we're not, gonna, we're not gonna publish it because, you know, it's a 40-minute, you know, National Geographic special is what it is, but it's not a movie. So we put it on the shelf, and we just sat back, and I watched my own journey of trying to become a better father, a better husband, a better leader, a better person. And it had it played out and it took about 18 months to really kind of play out until we could really tell a story of what I learned. And I ended up, you know, actually having really hard conversations with my parents about their divorce. And, you know, we ended up telling a story that was my hero's journey. So yeah, that was the film and that's what happened when I came back, but it took about 18 months to play out. Cool. And did you, did you find closure on, on the conversation with your parents when you went there? Did that help you? Like, did, did you, you mentioned that that was kind of a, an embedded trauma that was driving some of the actions in your life or perhaps limiting you from some of the actions in your life. And then you went back and you had those hard conversations. Did you find that that actually rooted out your, your embedded uh, traumas from that? Give you some closure? Yeah, I mean, very much so. I mean, um, you know, when I was seven years old, my parents got divorced. And, and for me, that was a very traumatic event in my life. And uh, as, uh, as I learned from Dr. Gabriel Mate, who's one of the guests in the uh, movie, and we had a, a star-studded guest roster in the film because anybody that came on my show, I kind of just, you know, uh, appropriated into my film without their permission. So we had Dr. Jordan Peterson, we had Michael Pollan, who wrote an incredible book about psychedelics. We had Sadhguru. We had Gabor Mate. We had Dorian Yates. Um, well, a whole list and host of people, Joe Dispenza. And we all pulled them into the narrative and they kind of helped me along this journey. They were like my, um, you know, my Obi-Wan Kenobi in this journey. And they all had things to help me with. Dan Pena was in it as well. So they were helping me try to process this event I had in my life that that kept me kind of isolated most of my life and kept me isolated from people because I thought people would hurt me. Um, and it's, it's strangely, I had a conversation recently with one of the members of the House of Lords here in, in England. He's in his 70s, a really prominent guy. Uh, you know, uh, you know, he made a lot of money in the city. Now he's in the House of Lords. And he had a similar experience as a kid. Um, his uh, father died when he was four. And we kind of connected with this sense of being wary of people. So it put me on this whole path in my life where I was quite isolated and it just meant that I could never really connect with people. So that's why we called the movie Reconnect. And my second ceremony showed me that this was a block and I got to talk to my mom and dad about it and it really helped 
Daniel, and making the movie really helped the closure. And I felt like I, I left a lot of baggage behind me and processed it. And I think it allowed me to really move forward and be the man I am today, you know? Um, and just like in Iron Mind, I kind of spoke about this heroin overdose and this really horrible, ugly part of my past that I never thought I would tell anyone about. I hadn't told my wife in 16 years. I had never told anyone. Only a few close friends knew about it. But by talking about it and processing it, it allowed me to go to the next level. So yeah, it was a really big part in my, in my journey. And the truth is, I'm sure there's more I'm gonna have to process. We're always going through many hero's journeys in our lives, but um, it was really important going to Sultara and having this and making a movie out of it. So uh, it really set me up for 2020, I really think in a big way. Ayahuasca is famous for improving relationships, for, for showing people, including myself, this has really been valuable for me stopping me before I make, before I cross the line with somebody, showing me that my relationship's more important than being right, showing me that I'm nothing without my relationships, right? So, you know, this, this experience had a big impact on your family life. And maybe, do you have anything to say about how the, the, the ayahuasca journey that you had affected your family life and your relation to your family? Yeah, you know, ayahuasca is an interesting thing. I remember I, I had a conversation with Dan Hardy, the famous UFC fighter, many, many years ago. And I remember I asked him about ayahuasca and I had had some experiences early on in the show with ayahuasca about eight years ago. So I knew of it. And I remember he once said something, it was a really poignant line. He said, ayahuasca doesn't change you. It just allows you to understand yourself better. And I always thought that was a really good line. And I would say that's probably true uh, about me. It, it just gives you a chance to take a step back and try and view yourself objectively and usually get some painful reminders of the way you're treating people and um, how you maybe need to really consider how other people feel, the bigger picture, um, the bigger universe that isn't just about you. You know, they say ayahuasca kind of destroys the ego and I think it does do that to a certain extent and it just allows you to get a, a better perspective on your life that in the long term will serve you better. You know, if, if you don't have that, you might get to where you're 80 years old and you wake up and say, you'll, you'll be in your deathbed and say, wow, I made my whole life about me and I'm just so miserable. <laughs> Whereas if you maybe had that ayahuasca ceremony that was super challenging, might've put your life in a bit of a stasis for, you know, six months, but you might've been able to make better decisions that would make you more connected. Because I do think ultimately we're here to connect with each other. We're here to be of service to each other. We are all connected as one. The sooner you get that lesson, I think the sooner you'll have a more fulfilling life. And ayahuasca can be a really good component with getting that. But when it gives you the message, it's really hard to receive and it can be very painful emotionally, at least it, it is for me. And I can be really good at shutting down emotions in my normal life, but in the ceremony, whew, it can really put me in touch with them. And it's good though, because it makes you take action because you feel you feel the pain you're causing to people. You feel, yeah, the relationships you're not showing up for. You feel, you know, the, the necessity of you to step up and do more and be more. And that's what I felt, man. So yeah, it was, it was powerful. Yeah, you know, sometimes people can be annoying, right? Sometimes you feel slighted by someone or sometimes you feel like um, you're right and someone else is wrong. And that can be annoying, but you know, what's worse 
than being annoyed is being alone on your deathbed, right? That's like, you don't want to get there. You just don't want to get there. So, you know, that, that has been one of the main lessons that I've learned repeatedly from the medicine is like, you need to preserve relationships in your life, even if you have to suck it up a little bit from time to time. What about, um, what about the effect on your entrepreneurial life? Like what kind of examples of, uh, what kind of examples of actions or developments or changes that you implemented in your company, uh, after, after you got back, like you said, you were playing small before you thought you were playing small. Um, so what did you do to kind of, to kind of up your game once you got back in the, back in business, back in the game? Yeah. I mean, again, it sounds simplistic when I say I was playing small or we're all playing small, but I mean, it probably if, if anyone's super honest with themselves, that's listening to us right now or watching us right now, if they're really honest with themselves, they are playing small and potentially living a quiet life of desperation as it's been called. And if you really wanna honor this incredible life we've been given, then it's actually your responsibility to go as big as possible every single day. And then, and some people say, but yeah, does that mean everyone's an egomaniac? No, I mean, imagine if everyone you met in your life in one single day was being the best version of themselves. I'm talking about the best bus driver, the best barista at Starbucks, the best, you know, this, the best that. I mean, we would live in this incredible world where everyone was, you know, doing their best and being of service and fighting their own demons and fighting their own resistance. And, you know, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And so I got back here and I was like, you know what? Yeah, you're, you're still holding yourself back. You're still self-conscious. You're still not really stepping up and being a leader and really going as big as you can. And so I just started trying to process that, which took a long time to process and really try to remind myself that I needed to fight all of my natural tendencies to not be that person. And um, it's, it's still a battle, but I feel like I at least got to see it in the ceremony. And now I know my default is, is not to take the risk, not to step up, not to go for it. So now I'm, I force myself to do those things. So that, that's what it helped. And yeah, it, it changed everything here at London Real. It changed the decisions we made, the risks we took. Um, and that's what an entrepreneur has to do, has to take risks. Um, and it had a lot to do with 2020 and probably even me running for mayor. Did you find yourself pushing your staff harder for excellence? Yeah, that's probably true. You know, at first I, I, at first I wanted to try to make sure I listened to them and, you know, cause ayahuasca can give you this thing of, you know, don't make it all about you. And as, as, as a leader, you know, you kind of have to drive your business forward and push your vision. So it's conflicting narratives to a certain extent because you're trying to listen to others, but you're trying to stay true to your vision. You have to find somewhere in between. And um, I've always struggled with that with psychedelics because the psychedelic says, no, listen to others, and you come back to the real world and say, yeah, but if you wanna do something great with the life and inspire other people, then you also have to drive forward. So I'm sure you find yourself caught between those two extremes as well, and that, that's part of life. You know, you have to say, you know, so, sometimes you have to override what the psychedelics tell you and say, okay, I see what you're saying, but today we need to go out there and lead and do our best and compete to win. Um, and I think that's necessary too. And I guess you see examples of that in nature as well. So yeah, it was this fine line that we kind of talked about in the movie 
And I found some kind of homeostasis with that. And I'm sure next time I come down and see you and drink, I'll find another reset and I'll have to kind of deal with that. But I do think after that reset, I'll be able to go higher the next time, you know, and connect more with my purpose and try to find this selfless way to, to serve and give back. So, uh, but I don't know when that's going to be. <laughs> that's a, that's a very interesting observation. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's something I, I do find all the time is like, you know, the, the, the recognition that it's important to be receptive to feedback and, and, and to take in inputs from, from all the sources in, a, in, in the most impartial and unbiased way possible um, and receive that information and then make a decision, right? And sometimes your decision is not what other people would like it to be. And, you know, you, you, you have to, as the leader, who's ultimately a hundred percent accountable to the outcome for the outcome, you have to make a decision that's based on what you believe is the right move, right? What your intuition is telling you is the right move. What your analysis is telling you is the right move. What your life experience and your wisdom is telling you is the right move. Sometimes other people don't like that. Sometimes they don't like that a lot. And, you know, you have to, you have to just, you know, put on your, your armor and, and stand your ground and, you know, sometimes walk through a barrage of negative energy, um, and, and, and backlash to get done what you think is the right move. And as the, you know, as the founder, as the leader, um, of an organization, you know, you have not only an ethical responsibility, but oftentimes a legal responsibility and a fiduciary responsibility to, to enact and to implement and to execute on the actions that you think are best for the organization. Right. Yeah, very much. So it's a dance, you know, it's a dance with the ego. I remember I was speaking to Graham Hancock one time, you know, the incredible author who's also speaks on psychedelics. He writes fiction and nonfiction. And he said, Brian, I like to drink ayahuasca and I like to dissolve my ego and find the right thing to do. But he said, it's the ego that gets the book done. You know, that's what gets it published because I don't want to look stupid and I want to make sure it's good. And he said, that can be a good thing too. So yeah, you have to kind of dance with that. You can't be all one or the other, or you get to these strange extremes. Um, yeah, you can't be all peace and love and forgiving and let it go. And, you know, because then, then you're not going to really be of service to others. And the, and the extreme is you're going to be a super unhappy, alone egomaniac trying to whip people into your vision. And that probably won't work either. Um, so yeah, it's somewhere in between. It really is. Compromise, man, compromise. It's all about compromise. But at the end of the day, you know, um, you, you, all we can do is we do our best, right? We do our best to make the decisions that we feel are going to have the least amount of collateral damage that are going to have the least amount of casualties and that are going to drive our organizations forward in the best way possible. And sometimes you nail that and sometimes you don't, but you get better at that with experience, right? And with decision-making experience on the battlefield. Um, so in terms of entrepreneurship, what, what would you consider 
the most difficult aspect of entrepreneurship for you? Hmm. You know, I would say that the biggest lesson I learned about being an entrepreneur is that I am naturally very risk averse. I, I just am as a person for probably a lot of reasons. Uh, my education didn't help because I went to school to be an engineer. And uh, when you're learning to be an engineer at MIT, they teach you how to build bridges that don't break and cars that don't explode and planes that don't fall out of the sky. So you're always worried about the little risk, you know, that's gonna break something. So, you know, and same when I was on Wall Street, I traded as well. So you're always worried about that one event that's gonna, you know, hit you with a $20 million loss that day. Um, unfortunately, that's no way to run a business. And any, any entrepreneur listening to me knows what I'm talking about. You're probably shaking your head up and down too is that your job as an entrepreneur is to take risk. If you don't take risk, you die. Um, and luckily, one of my mentors, it's Dan Pena, the trillion dollar man, as he's called now. By the way, I gave him that title. And by the way, I made him famous on YouTube. And he says both of those things, um, who I have still have a love-hate relationship with. Um, he, he, he taught me that. He taught me that I wasn't taking risk and I must engineer risk into my life. And he says, once the engineers get it, they're slow to get it, but once they get it, they really get it. Um, it's true probably about doctors and Germans too. He's got a lot of successful Germans. But once they get it, they really know how to get it. So now I literally engineer risk into my life. And I look at the year and I'm thinking, if I'm not doing three or four projects that scare the hell out of me, or that I could potentially fall flat on my face and look really stupid, then uh, if I'm not doing that, then I'll probably go bankrupt this year. So I gotta force myself to, yeah, run an Ironman race in full view of everyone else that I could literally fail and fall and look stupid, you know? Go down and have my ayahuasca, you know, ceremony filmed. Uh, invest in a massive new building here when we don't have the money for it. Um, and there's, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This year, fighting against YouTube, my major platform that was 99% of my business and going head to head with that, knowing that my business could literally go under for having that fight, putting my reputation on the line for nine years. But if you don't do that, then you're gonna die as, a, as an entrepreneur. So that's the biggest lesson I learned. I wish I'd learned it sooner. Um, and I have to remind myself every day to, to take that risk. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, that's, uh, that itself is a dance as well, that, that ability to, to uh, endure the feeling of being at risk, right? Cause it's a hard, it's, that's where the stress comes from. When you do something, when you make a move as an entrepreneur, when you put your money or someone else's money on the line, that's a big weight, man. You know, like when I started Soltara, um, you know, I didn't have the cash flow to, to invest, you know, millions of dollars in this property, I had to look for money from investors, from people. And, um, you know, I, I don't know a lot of multimillionaires, you know, I'm not, I'm not connected to a whole bunch of money. Um, you know, I grew up in, uh, in a small town in Canada in, in, in a very middle-class region in a kind of blue collar, uh, family. And, um, so I had to find multiple investors for smaller amounts. I had about 15 investors, kind of blue collar investors that invested in Soltara. And I tell you, man, this whole time, especially during the startup phase, that feeling of constantly being at risk and having all of those people's money at risk 
that's pretty heavy. And there's not a lot of people that can do that easily. And I wonder if that's a thing that you practice that you get better at as you, you know, kind of build confidence in that zone, but it's absolutely necessary. And I would recommend to any kind of entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs who are listening to, uh, you know, to get comfortable taking risks, to get comfortable enduring that kind of difficult, it might be a two year or three year or five year, or it might be periodic times where it's really difficult and you're carrying that risk above you. Um, so, so when you, you filmed Iron Mind, you basically put yourself in a very risky position, right? You were like broadcasting your journey. You were making all these commitments. Uh, I'm sure that felt like it was quite risky and, and, you know, you were filming yourself, you'd invested all this money into, uh, the film project and, and, and then you kind of came up to this final race where like everything was on the line and everything you'd trained for was on the line. Um, how was that experience mentally and, uh, and psychologically? And do you think that was relevant and important to your future success in entrepreneurship and in building the channel? And would you recommend that, uh, other aspiring entrepreneurs or leaders seek out very difficult rites of passage like that, that really challenge you physically, psychologically, and, uh, and emotionally? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, just a little background on it. Like I said, certain guests, they come into the studio and they resonate with us and we end up making movies about them. Um, we don't really choose them. They kind of choose us. Uh, and one of those guys was John Joseph. He's, um, you know, uh, lead singer of the hardcore punk band, the Cro-Mags, which were really big in kind of the 80s and 90s in New York City. Um, he had his own struggle with uh, drug addiction, um, had a struggle with, with uh, child sexual abuse as well at a foster home. And, um, you know, really came out the other end uh, sober and a guy that really got kind of addicted to Ironman races as a way of just continuing to live his life. He also had been um, a Hare Krishna monk for you know 30 years and a vegan for 30 years. So he came on the show. He kind of got in my biz a little bit. He's a hard talking New Yorker, you know. And um, he invited me to come to New York City and then pushed me, challenged me to run this this Ironman race on a 100% plant based diet and wouldn't take no for an answer. And so that's what happened. And we filmed the whole process and we actually were doing a real time weekly piece as well. And then when I was in New York City, all my dark past came out. We didn't really plan this, but it all came out on tape. And I ended up confessing this dark past I had with drug addiction. And then, then I had to train for it in real time and run the business. And then, and then I didn't know how it was going to go. I had never competed in an endurance race, let alone an Ironman, let alone swim in 2K in a river, you know, all this stuff, you know, that sounds crazy. Um, I just decided to do it and I was 47 years old. So it was just something we embraced. Um, I knew it would be a risk and I knew I would look really stupid if I quit the race midway after spending, you know, months of everyone's time. And, you know, so yeah, it was, it was pressure, but it was also, I also had a lot of love and support from people all around the world. And you could argue also, I was the one person in the race that had the most motivation to finish because I had a camera crew running around following me. I had people following my, you know, I was wearing an ankle bracelet. People were around the world were watching me that day. My dad in San Diego was watching me. And so 
it ended up being an amazing experience. And yeah, it taught me that I could, I could accomplish anything I put my mind to. And that was the amazing thing. A lot of people see that movie and they say, I could never swim. I could never do this. But of course you can. All you have to do is just, you know, go figure it out. And so again, once you get one of those under your belt, you realize that there's, there's, there's almost anything you can do. And um, it was really another powerful moment in life where I was like, wow, okay, that's another thing I can do. That's another thing I can do. And once you stack enough of those wins up, you know, David Goggins, the super famous um, Navy SEAL who was on my show, um, who's got an incredible book out. Um, uh, I forgot the name of it, but I'll, I'll think of it again. He calls it going into your cookie jar. So every time you're faced with adversity in life and you don't think you can do it, you go into the cookie jar and you remind yourself of a time in your life when you accomplished something you didn't think you could accomplish. And it doesn't mean you walk around with a big head all day long and think I'm the greatest, but it means that when you come up with something, you say, wait a second, I ran an Ironman race. Come on, don't tell me I can't go do something else. Um, I graduated from MIT. I, I Don't tell me I can't do this. You know, I did this. Don't tell me I can't do this. So this year when we faced a ton of pressure, I'm always going back to that cookie jar thinking, how bad is today? Is it that bad? Is it as hard as it was on, you know, in Chattanooga, Tennessee when I spent six hours on the Ironman track? No. So I can handle this. And um, it's a great concept. So yeah, I would say um, everybody out there, not just entrepreneurs, put yourself in challenging situations and don't let your, your subconscious give you the narrative of, oh, I'm no good at swimming. Oh, I'm no good at business. Oh, I'm no good at music. Oh, I'm no good at art. It's this little narrative we play in our head that just makes us play these small lives. And it's fear, which as my mentor Dan Pena says, is an acronym for false expectations appearing real. Most of us put these fear bubbles around us and we never go explore all these incredible things in our life. And 99% of the things we fear will happen to us never happen in business as well. So what, you know, what are you doing? Uh, most of us just need to go ahead and pull the trigger more in life. Um, and experience what happens. And yeah, sure, every now and then you'll take a hit. You know, I overdosed on heroin in 2001. It sucked. I could have died. Yeah, true. But, um, you know, I also took a lot of other risks in life and I found my boundaries and I'm still here. So uh, yeah, hopefully that's a lesson for people out there. There's so much of life we don't explore because we don't allow ourselves to explore it. And that was a bit of my lesson I taught myself in the ceremony is stop playing small. You know, what, what are you worried about? Like what's the worst that's gonna happen? We're all gonna die anyways. In the cosmos of time, in the billions of years, your life, everything you do in your life is gonna be meaningless. So, you know, why not go for it? That's so amazing uh, to, to recognize. And um, that's also something that I have really, really come to understand uh, over and over and over again. It's what you tell yourself. It's, it, you know, you might experience fear. I experience fear. I experience stress. I experience anxiety. But I know through lots of experience that I can talk myself out of it. You know, I can, like, self-talk is so important in self-motivation. Like, you can literally do anything you tell yourself you can do. And, um, yeah, so when it comes to kind of living in fear or not doing something because you feel fearful, you know, there's a shortcut to get out of that. And that is just drive your mentality, drive your own mentality, drive your own self-talk 
to just push through that. And I think, you know, the word might be courage when you have a fear uh, experience in front of you and you talk yourself through it anyways. You walk through that door, even though you feel fear and you tell yourself that that you're, you are dependable, that you can depend on yourself, that you you can rely on yourself to make the decisions uh, th- even if you don't know the clear way through it, you can tell yourself that you will make the right decision. So just take that step through that door and just keep going and depend on yourself to, to make that decision in the moment when it comes up. Um, I found that that to be a, a super, super important uh, technique for doing anything that is outside of my comfort zone. Um, when you were launching Iron Mind films like, like Iron Mind and Reconnect, where you got very personal about, you know, you, you kind of came out of the closet about your, you know, your, your drug addiction and heroin overdose in New York. Um, what kind of self-talk did you have going on there when you were kind of at that precipice of announcing to the world that, that you were going to, that, that, that this had happened to you. Cause I know it was a challenge for you. Um, or like getting really vulnerable on reconnect when talking about your, you know, your, your, uh, parents divorce and, um, you know, getting emotional on camera. What kind of self-talk is, is going through your mind when you're about to launch that to hundreds of thousands of people? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think doing London Real for years and years and years helped prepare me for those documentaries because I would sit in studio, Daniel, sometimes for two or three hours with, you know, men and women who would bear their soul to me and sometimes cry. You know, I've had Nigel Ben, the dark destroyer, one of the greatest boxers in the world, you know, crying for two or three minutes in front of me. You know, um, Eddie Hall, strongest man in the world, crying. You know, I've had Dorian get emotional. I mean, I've been around really strong, powerful people that have told me their real stories. And so, um, you know, it's called London Real for a reason. So when I, I was with John Joseph in New York City and I was literally having an emotional moment being in New York because I, I was remembering all the failures I had and he was putting me through this rigorous workout and it just, you know, I was on a bike one time doing a six minute max heart rate test and I just started crying when I was on the bike. And I mean, and then it was finally time to talk to John. And if John hadn't have been so open about his own abuse and for a tough guy like John to talk about being sexually abused as a kid, I mean, you know, he set the stage for saying it's okay to open up. And that's where that's where you give the most service is when you open up about your own failures and darkness. So it was just a perfect setup for me to be honest. And I, I, I needed to talk about this too. You know, I needed a place to do it. And, and my camera team was super supportive and it just happened, man. It was, I mean, I, it was, it was emotional to say the least. And then when we got back to London, we're like, oh man, what are we going to do with that? Like, you know, and like the guys were like, well, maybe we just uh, say uh, it was an addiction. And then, and then my filmmaker Luis is like looking at me like, really? And I'm looking at him like, we can't do that. And then finally, it's just like, this is London real. And I'm always encouraging all my students in my academy 
to get vulnerable about their past. So it was time to walk the walk, you know, and not just talk the talk. So we just went all in. And I wrote an email. I remember, well, I played the episode for my wife. First time she ever heard about it. We, cause we made the weekly episode. We played it for her. Of course, <laughs> my camera crew filmed that. So that's what a filmmaker does. They film, they film your wife when you tell her this stuff. And so she's in the movie in real time watching this revelation about the man she loves, um, telling her a secret that's 16 years old, which is heavy stuff. She slaps me in a nice way afterwards. Um, and then I wrote an email to all my followers, to hundreds of thousands of people. And I remember the subject lines was said, <laughs> my heroin overdose. <laughs> and it was like, it was a hard email to write. But once I wrote it, Daniel, I got thousands of replies from people saying, I did the same thing. My brother did the same thing. And it was just this uh, incredible source of light that came out of the, one of the darkest moments of my life. So yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was the right thing to do, man. And then the more you do it, if you're around supportive people and my filmmaker, Luis, who constantly pushes me, and then we would just look at each other and, and reconnect and say, is this real? Is this honest? Is this truthful? Because the truth is the only thing that holds up. And we make films, man, we are very detailed about our films, as you probably noticed. Every frame is thought out, every voiceover is thought out. And if it's not real, then the audience knows it. And so we just try to make it real, sometimes too real. So uh, I cried so much. I mean, I had to watch that movie probably 800, 900 times. You know, I watched it over and over again until it was perfect. And I'd be in my office crying every day watching that movie. <laughs> it was crazy. So, uh, but yeah, hopefully it, it'll be something that can help a lot of people for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Well, man, that, that movie brought me to tears when I went to your, I went to the premiere of Iron Mind, right? Um, and uh, that brought me to tears. I went to the premiere of Reconnect, that fucking brought me to tears. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, yeah, that, that kind of vulnerable, uh, that vulnerable connection, that emotional connection with the audience, I think is super important. Um, what have you learned about leadership from your mentor, Dan Pena? Wow. I mean, look, you know, Dan is, uh, he's a, a very unusual guy. Um, but he changed my life, you know, and in 2014, he walked into my studio and, um, you know, he taught me so much, changed my life forever, uh, that guy, and uh, really gave me some hard learning lessons and uh, put me on a different course. It changed the course of London Real, changed the course of my life, and uh, spending time in his castle just took me on a whole nother trajectory. Um, so, you know, that guy taught me a lot. Um, you know, it's just real basics with Dan Pena, you know, just real basics. Uh, you know, he's taught me a lot about self-talk, taught me a lot about affirmations, taught me a lot about risk-taking, you know, just being being around greatness is a, a powerful thing, Daniel. And 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 Dan Pena gets a lot of criticism. And especially when I first started having him on the show, he got a lot of criticism. Now, now he's considered, you know, a cult figure, pretty well respected for his results. But at the time then he was highly politically incorrect. You know, nasty things coming out of his mouth, treated me nasty as well until I became one of his on his hall of fame. You know, he used to say horrible things to me and about my show and about my listeners, but I kept him around because at the same time, he was holding me to task and forcing me to be better and better and better. And I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. And so, uh, you know, being around someone like that, that, you know, doesn't compromise, um, that does things for the right reasons, uh, you know, that's been super helpful. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I could boil it down into a bunch of lessons, uh, but you know, teaching me to take risk, 
the affirmations, um, all that stuff is super powerful. Do you think society has a lack of leadership right now? Do you think we used to be less fearful as a society and, and more courageous? Well, you know, one of the things Dan Pena always said is that political correctness is a manifestation uh, of a lack of self-esteem. That's what he said. Now think about what that says. Political correctness, which we're surrounded in these days, you can't even say the obvious sometimes. You have to say something around the obvious. Uh, people are being canceled for saying the views or contradicting each other. He says that's a manifestation uh, uh, of, of a lack of self-esteem. So, you know, you don't believe in yourself so you are willing to kind of kowtow to the mob and accept whatever they tell you, no matter how ridiculous it is. And I'm not going to go and talk about some of the ridiculous things that we see um, being towed on the line. But, you know, if you go down that route, it's super disempowering. And so, yeah, we, we see that happening today. That wasn't happening as much 20, 40, 50 years ago in Dan's generation. And sure, there are limits to Dan, but I do think that yeah, I mean, it's all wrapped up into leadership, making a difference. You have to be willing to not care what anyone thinks. You have to be willing to make enemies. You have to be willing to be honest with your opinion and say, no, you're wrong, and I don't care what you think, and you can try to cancel me, and I'm just going to do it anyways. Um, and it can be dangerous these days. And we've had to, we made a lot of people upset this year with what we've done, and our whole 2020 experience with censorship um, has been a lot of, of that. And I've really now experienced what it's like to kind of be canceled for saying things that just aren't considered politically correct. And I have no interest in doing that. I, I will not do that. And that's why I cherish guys like Dan Pena who still are not afraid to say <laughs> what they think is the truth. And um, there's not many people like him anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've had just a like you've had all kinds of crazy experiences with this this year, which which I'd love to to get your views on. But even just like and I'm on the same page, like I think this is a very dangerous, very dangerous thing that's taking place right now when you're not even allowed to express your views. You're not even allowed to talk to someone who expresses views. You're not even allowed to talk to someone who's talked to someone who's expressed their views. Um, and in case in point, um, you know, we have a, a mutual uh, associate here who is really not a big fan of either of us, I don't think right now, but um, uh, I won't mention any names, but this person was associated uh, with me in a, in a, in a business capacity. And um, when I mentioned that I was going to and that, uh, speak with you on my show, that person, you know, is, is very much in that category of kind of, uh, leftist cancel culture, kind of thought police and, and, uh, you know, and, and I don't, I don't go there. Like, I just can't, you know, I know like working in the ayahuasca space here, that's a real challenge because people are, people double down on that. If like, say I, I run an ayahuasca center and people assume that I should have a certain set of social political beliefs or that I should be a certain way. And if I say anything that is even mildly critical of, of one side um, or even mildly 
different than kind of mainstream narrative or, or what people expect uh, from me, then, you know, there's a threat of, of someone writing a post and talking negatively about me or about Soltara. And it's something that, you know, as a, as an organization, we have to be constantly conscious of, of just saying the wrong thing because, you know, someone could cancel us and, and just start this campaign of like tarnishing my reputation or tarnishing Soltara's reputation just because of a simple uh, political comment or a comment related to, you know, my disliking for the lockdowns or, you know, what have you that is even slightly socially charged. It's like a, it's, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a nuclear bomb waiting to go off. And it's, I think that's just such a dangerous path that we're walking right now, man, because it, it, it goes in one direction. Right. And that's towards, I mean, basically some of the, the less, uh, the less digestible social political, uh, paradigms that, you know, we've, we've seen historically that I won't mention by name, but, um, so this person, once once they found out that I was going to speak with you on the podcast, basically gave me an ultimatum to cancel you because of who you've talked to during the pandemic, or she was going to cancel me. So um, I said, I'm sorry, I'm not playing that game. I'm not playing that game. You know, I, I, I fully wholeheartedly uh, believe against what is going on right now with this cancel culture, the shaming, you know, as you said, this, the people aren't leaders because they lack self-esteem these days. Well, how does all of this shaming come into play? You know, you're, you should be ashamed of yourself because you're white or, or because you're male or because you believe this or because you believe that. And that is not cultivating a strong and, and leadership full society. Um, so, so yeah, at the end of the, the day, you know, I stood for my beliefs on not playing into that hand, not playing into the cancel culture hand and saying, you know what? I don't agree with the opinions of uh, some of these people who Brian has talked to on his podcast in the last nine months. He doesn't agree with all the opinions of those people that he's talked to on his show, but I I'm not going to cancel him because he talked to some people um, and because they have different views than what the mainstream narrative, what the WHO said, the WHO, which has contradicted itself multiple times anyways, seems like nobody's really correct about, you know, how to play a correct response to the pandemic and to the lockdown. Um, but anyways, yeah, so I stood my ground stood for my beliefs. I, I, I was very diplomatic and I said, I, I actually, you know, want to have varied opinions. I would love to speak uh, with you as well, referring to this person uh, on the show and, and, and have you voice whatever you'd like to voice as well. If you have contrasting opinions to Brian or to the people who he's talked to on his show. Um, and of course the answer was no, that person did not want to associate with me if I was associating with you. So you know, this is just like, how far is it going to go before we turn the ship around and start moving back toward, you know, free speech, cooperation, non-polarization, dialogue, you know, like trying to 
trying to build a bridge between these two sides instead of instead of constantly criticizing each other for being wrong and 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 for being shameful and the need to like you know apologize for everything you do and and you know like like what has your experience been with all that cuz i know you've gone through an arduous journey you mentioned earlier your battle with youtube and everything like 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 what has your year been like yeah well first of all um look i I appreciate you standing up for your own beliefs. I mean, you know, the fact that I was involved, I also appreciate too, but you know, the the way to battle this is to hold your ground and and be yourself. So, in and I know that's really hard, especially when you have a business and you're in a space that probably associates you with a certain type of thinking. I know that can be really tricky to navigate. And look, you know, for years people have been trying to tell me what London Real should be. For years, Daniel. Oh, you should have this guest on. Why don't you have more of these guests on? Why don't you say this? Why do you say that? I've had people quit my academy because of Dan Pena being on my show. This is years ago before cancel culture was even an expression. Um, and I was just like, okay, um, I guess you're going to have to go. Um, and people repeatedly try to tell me what my show is. And Mike, I always say my show is my show. And guess what? You can do your show. But, you know, don't tell me what my show is. And my show has a certain audience and my show, they, by definition, like what I'm doing. So I don't necessarily need to have um, an equal part of this or an equal part of that or a this or a that. I'm actually doing just my thing. And I also don't need someone to tell me who I am or what I need to do to prove to them who I am. And we saw a lot of that this year. Well, if you don't do this, then that means you're this. And if you don't do this, that means you're this. And it's like, I'm not here to perform for you. I know who I am. Uh, and I'm confident with who I am, and I'm just going to keep being me. But a lot of people um, felt a lot of pressure to do differently. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this. Um, funny enough, Daniel, it used to be the right or the conservative side that would censor people and vilify people. If you go back into, you know, uh, you know, some of the McCarthy era in the '40s, where they were going out and trying to find the communists in America. It was like the conservatives, but now it's the left-leaning, usually the liberal people that are now enforcing things like censorship, which is strange. Um, and also they take it to an extreme and they end up canceling each other sometimes. So they'll cancel you know, their friends because they weren't towing the specific line they're doing. And um, I know conservatives love to watch that happen because they think it's quite comical because they eat their own, they say. Um, for me, I think it's just all a tragedy. Um, and so it's probably linked a little bit what happened this year with us. And, uh, you know, on April 6th of this year, I got a very quick lesson in what censorship was. And, you know, we live streamed a conversation on London Real, just like I've been doing for nine years now. I had a guest in the studio, in the leather chair. We had a long, calm conversation for two and a half hours. We streamed it on YouTube. It happened to be the second largest YouTube live stream in the world that day. Uh, second to Donald Trump's coronavirus briefing that day. Um, it was massive, and if the show would have been been allowed to stay on the platform, it would have been watched 30 or 40 million times. Would have been the most watched video podcast in human history. Would have been bigger than Elon Musk on Joe Rogan. Um, but it was banned and deleted, and we started our entire battle with censorship um, on YouTube. And we started having some of these conversations that you just mentioned with people um, that wanted to censor us and wanted to stop us from talking about a variety of things. Um, and so it was a really interesting 
<laughs> few months of having conversations with people and I had to really ask myself, what does freedom of speech mean? You know, uh, do, do, do we have the right to decide the ideas that we are allowed to put in our own brains? You know, and, and Graham Hancock said that about psychedelics, Daniel, on my show eight years ago. He said, if we do not have sovereignty over our own bodies, what do we have? Why should the state have sovereignty over our own bodies? And he was talking about your choice to consume psychedelics, which is still illegal in many countries, which is why you're in Costa Rica, for example. And so if you can't, if you don't have sovereignty over substances, um, I mean, shouldn't you have sovereignty over the information you put in your ears? And yet government is saying it's too dangerous to allow you to consume an idea. Um, a social media platform saying they can't broadcast an idea. I, I never thought that would happen to me on London Real. I thought censorship happened to weirdos and conspiracy guys and crazy people. But here it was happening to me in real time. And so our natural decision was to fight back and say, hell no. And so we, um, we pushed back. We started a fight with YouTube that was very damaging to us, nearly cost us our entire channel, you know, which is nine years, uh, 8,000 videos, uh, half a billion views, um, and millions and millions of dollars of revenue, you know, potentially down the tubes. Uh, we are literally one video away from being deplatformed. I've been told that for the past four months, one upload away. Uh, and that means we could say something here today. And if I upload this video and they feel it, it violates community policy for hate speech, then the whole channel's gone. And so it's this sort of Damocles and it makes you censor yourself. Um, and it's everywhere and it's horrible. And like you said, it leads to things down the road, which used to be depicted in movies like 1984, the thought police. Um, you know, it happened in regimes like Stalin's and Hitler's, you know, where you're burning books. Um, when you're deleting videos on YouTube, it's a lot like burning books um, and they're extinguishing ideas. Uh, luckily, we had a whole army of people from around the world and they supported us and we ended up creating our own digital platform and streaming our own content. Um, and I was blown away by the response, um, but it was very, very difficult times this year. Um, it was hard, um, but it also taught me who I was and I was so proud of the team and I'm so proud of what we did, um, but a lot of people hated us. I tried to get coverage in the mainstream media, Daniel, for eight years. I couldn't get it. Nobody would write about us because I think our independent media platform threatened theirs. I wanted to get an article written by Vice Magazine. I wanted the BBC to write about me. I wanted the Times of London to write about me. Nobody would until this year. Then they all wrote about me. Of course, they had nasty things to say about me, but hey, I got the press. Um, and so, and what I also got was, you know, thousands of people around the world. Uh, we raised a million and a half dollars. We created the digital freedom platform. We streamed the largest uh, live stream of a human conversation in history. We did the largest um, uh, premiere of a documentary film in history. I'm talking about 1 million, 1.3 million, 1.6 million live people watching on our own platform, not on YouTube. That was made by a trillion dollar company. So it was an amazing success, but we also made enemies. But also after it's all said and done, we got a lot of respect from people that, that saw what we did. And I'll say one final thing, Daniel, I made enemies, but I also made some incredible allies. Uh, Wimbledon champions contacting me, world champion boxers, supermodels, people, you know, Premier League football players, high level influence people saying, Brian, continue. They donate promoting our stuff. And I'd rather have, I'd rather have allies like that 
and haters any day of the week than honestly just have a bunch of people think we were doing the right thing. So uh, that's what this year has been like. It's been interesting. Yeah, man. Um, I've, I've, I've worried about you, you know, about you losing your platform during all this. Um, but I'm glad to see that you're still going, but it, it seems like you have been penalized a little bit from this, right? Oh yeah. Massively. I mean, but we got thrown off pretty much every platform, you know? So honestly, content strikes on YouTube, uh, you know, massively censored on YouTube, you know, hundreds of videos taken down on YouTube, uh, Facebook, you know, banned, Instagram banned, shadow banned, LinkedIn thrown off the platform, Dropbox, PayPal, all shut down. So yeah, we've, had some real challenges there and are still dealing with shadow ban issues and all sorts of other problems. So that comes with the territory. And it's just, we had to kind of make peace with, with not having some of these options. Um, and you just kind of got to make peace with some of that and try to move forward. Again, it's like embracing some of that risk, you know? How can you imagine a life without a platform like YouTube? I couldn't. If you had told me a year ago, I was going to lose my YouTube channel, I would have said then we're dead. Um, and nowadays we're just finding a way to live with it. Um, and I'm sure we will in the future if it does, I've kind of made peace with it, but also that that's, you know, you learn that in an ayahuasca ceremony too, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen. We're all going to die one day, you know, and a lot of times my greatest fear, Daniel was losing my YouTube platform created our greatest success ever, the digital freedom platform. You know, it got us, it made us world famous for defending freedom of speech. We created content that's been watched 30, 40, 50 million, 100 million times. So, you know, my worst fear, Daniel, turned out to be our greatest success. If that's not a lesson for people out there to really question those fears that you have, then I don't know what is. Do you think you're going to recover the, the you know, the viewership and, you, you, you know, the kind of get over the shadow ban and all this kind of stuff? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't care. It's, it's honestly out of my control. So all we can do is wake up every day and say, how can we be of service at London Real? How can we do what we think is right? How can we teach? How can we put out the best content that answers the questions and tells the truth? And by any means necessary, as Malcolm X would say, how can we get it out there? If it's on YouTube, great. If it's not, we'll go on digital freedom platform. If not, we'll go on Instagram. If not, we'll get it on a Telegram channel. We'll find a way. And um, who knows? And then, And that's also led to you know, me also continuing to think outside the box. And that's when, you know, this whole concept of running for mayor of London came about. Maybe I can be even more effective, Daniel, by, by leading a city. And then maybe I don't need YouTube, you know? And this is a great thought exercise to anyone listening. Like, what if you killed all your darlings, everything you thought was necessary to your survival, and you were forced to, to innovate on the back of that? So what if our YouTube channel is taken away? Maybe that's, that's a sign from the universe that says, guess what? Maybe you need to go uh, be the mayor of London and make some real change, you know? So, you know, maybe the world's telling us stuff and this this probably had something to do with the evolution here as well. Well, that's obviously a good segue. And if you have uh, if you have time to answer, you know, uh, uh, or, or just discuss your, your involvement running for mayor of London, the reasons why you're doing it, what you expect to get accomplished and anything else you uh, have time to share and want to share, uh, we can uh, we can kind of wind down on that note if you want to do that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, if you watch the movie Reconnect, you'll see our mission statement on the wall here in our 
London Real World headquarters. And it's, it's quite simple. It's to create a mass scale transformation of humanity into a fully empowered, conscious and cooperative species. You know, that is our mission statement. So, and I encourage everyone to think about your mission statement as an individual and as a company. And I know they're a pain to do, and it sounds like something they do in Silicon Valley, but it's really important to really find out what do you stand for? You know, what is your family crest? You know, what are the core values to who you are as a person? And if you know your principles, then all other decisions are based on those principles and you don't have to rethink them all the time. What do you stand for? Do you stand for the truth no matter what? Do you stand for freedom of speech no matter what? Do you stand for your principles? Or are you gonna kowtow to someone that wants to come over here and say, guess what? If you don't do that principle today, we're gonna give you a little money and we'll let you off the cook and you can keep publishing on YouTube. Deal? And then you're like, no, that's not a deal because it's a principle, which means it's non-negotiable. So when I look at that mission statement, it's to create that mass scale transformation of humanity. And when we started looking around, we started looking at the city we were in and I started looking at the leadership in this country, in this city, and in the world over the past eight months. And I think most people could agree the leadership has been pretty poor, pretty appalling. A lot of world leaders making decisions that aren't based in science, aren't based in any proportionate response to the virus, and just no leadership. Nobody willing to step up and do the hard things and lead from Zero the Zero courage. Just zero courage at all. Yeah. Like it's, it's it's appalling. And so, you know, my part of what we were doing here on London Real was pointing out all the things they were doing wrong, right? They're doing this wrong. They're doing this. They're taking away our freedoms, all that. At some point, Daniel, and I tell all of my team here, and I'm sure you say this to your team, you know, anybody can bring me a problem. Your job is to bring me a solution. That's why you're part of this team. And, and I always believe in that. So we asked that to ourselves, what's the solution? And I looked at the leadership in this city and it was appalling. And uh, funny enough, because of COVID, the, the mayoral race was postponed a year. And funny enough, that timing was perfect. And I had never thought about political office. To be honest, Daniel, our business has never been better. It's never been bigger. And I've never been more needed in this company than ever. So this is the worst possible time for me to run for office. It's a massive pay cut. It's a very hard job that most people are gonna criticize me for regardless of how well I do it, all right? So I'm setting myself up for a world of hurt for the next three or four years. Let's be honest, that's what it is. There's no upside, nobody would wanna do this job, which is probably the reason I have to do it because the reason I'm doing it is because it needs to be done and it needs to be done in a selfless way that's to serve the citizens of the city, period. Nine million citizens, the job is to listen and to serve and to make the right decisions. And what I see our politicians do in this fake two-party system that pretends to compete with each other, but end up basically doing the same thing. And they both stay in power for hundreds of years. We have the same system here. They have different names, but it's the same racket. Um, you know, they, they argue with each other and uh, one of them gets elected, the next one gets elected and nothing really changes. We need fresh ideas. We need a new direction. We need new leadership. And we need to start basing decisions based on all the science that we've been talking about here for the past seven months. So we're gonna do it, um, you know, because it's the right thing to do and it's the best way to be of service. And so we thought long and hard about it and we announced about four and a half weeks ago. The response has been absolutely incredible, Daniel. Uh, we quickly became uh, a favorite in the odds makers, the bookmakers here in London that make odds on everything you know, uh, from sports to political events. Um, right away from the gate, they put us in third place, which was 
unheard of for an independent candidate, never seen in history in the mayoral race. Uh, we quickly moved into second and we're about to move into first place, which is again, completely unheard of. So I think it's because we have a massive following at London Real, we've been speaking the truth. And I think our policy ideas are absolutely incredible. And so uh, we're feeling super empowered. We're feeling super grateful and uh, full of a lot of incredible energy. And um, look, we plan on moving into City Hall on May 7th and changing this city. And uh, we're really excited. <laughs> so um, I never saw myself going down on this journey, but I will say one thing, Daniel. I think some of this goes back to uh, your Maloka in June of 2018 or May, whenever I was there. And what I was, what I was shown in that ceremony, which was step up and, and be the man that the world needs you to be. And honestly, I don't know if I'd be running for mayor if it wasn't for that. So I'm super grateful to you. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that I can finally just hopefully do that and be of service. So that's our plan. It's gonna be a hard race. They're gonna throw everything at us. I mean, if we thought we got a hard time this year and I got a ton of flack and a ton of hate, that's nothing compared to what these political parties are gonna throw at us in the next five months. It's gonna get nasty, real nasty. And uh, we're, we're prepared, whatever happens, happens. So that's, that's the plan. Yeah, man, you, you really made a couple of good points there. First, first of all, I have looked at your policies and they look great, man. Your, your, your approach, I think, is phenomenal. And, you know, that, that is exactly what I think London needs. I think it's what the United States needs. You know, you're looking at, at all this chaos going on there right now. It's like, dude, man. Get someone in the Maloka, or sorry, get someone in in the in the White House who's got experience in the Maloka, who has been through the hard challenges, who's accustomed to executing heavily on all these different things that you're accustomed to doing, leading a team, who's good leading media. You know, that's that's one reason why Trump did well because he's really good with the media and everything like that, and and he's you know accustomed to doing business you know, obviously comes with some, some problematic elements, but if you had someone uh, with those similar positive qualities lacking the negative qualities, I think that would be a winning uh, recipe and, and something that's much needed. I think the problem here with a, basically around the world is that the people who want to be politicians shouldn't be politicians. The people who don't want to be politicians should be politicians because like you said, it's a huge loss. You know, you're going to walk into a world of hurt. You're going to have all the shit in the world slung at you. You're going to take a pay cut. And you know, why wouldn't you just stay in your comfortable business when you can run things the way you want, make more money, you know, have your lifestyle with your family and everything like that. Um, and the answer to that has to be, because you see the need for change. You see the need to make a difference and you know that you can do it. You can be the guy who's going to work the media. You be the guy who's going to bring a team together. You be the guy who can make discerning decisions and, and incorporate science as well as common sense and wisdom and, and balance all that with your experience in executing on objectives, um, you know, over and over and over and over again. You know, that is all super critical stuff. And man, I just, as soon as I saw that announcement, I was super excited um, for you, really happy for you. 
Um, you know, we, we, we popped a little in the pot there for you to kind of help with some of the campaign finance. And, um, you know, I just really wish you the best, man. I, I really hope that, you know, you can utilize some of this content to help you, uh, to help you in that, that, that campaign. And, you know, if there's anything we can do here or I can do, uh, absolutely happy to do it. Awesome. And no, thank you. And I appreciate the, uh, the campaign donation. You've always been super supportive of us, of us, Daniel. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it makes a difference, you know, just having your support and energy and yeah, I mean, we're super excited. We want to bring this media platform to the mayor's office and I don't think anyone's ever seen anything like it. I mean, Trump had his Twitter account, but we're going to have a, a 5 million follower media channel. So I feel like communication is one of the biggest problems politicians have, and they also don't connect with the younger generation or any generation because they're not really on social. And I think that's a big reason why they're not even trusted by the younger generation. We're gonna be on there. I'm gonna be vlogging every day about what I'm doing as the mayor. I'm gonna be communicating my challenges. I'm gonna be asking for feedback. I don't think anyone will recognize the way we're gonna run this office. And I'm super excited and we plan on winning and we plan on being a model to cities around the world. Honestly, hopefully, London will show what New York could do, what LA can do, what Sao Paulo can do, what Madrid can do. And so, yeah, we're, we're super excited. And I do think coming at it as an entrepreneur is a completely different perspective than a politician. And uh, funny enough, uh, you know, Graham Hancock originally said eight years ago, he said, um, politicians should do 10 ayahuasca ceremonies before they run for office and then decide if they wanna run for office. Cause I agree, our current crop of politicians shouldn't be there you want to find someone who doesn't want to be a politician because they're the ones that'll probably get the job done. So uh, that's what we think and and that's what we're going to do. So thanks for the support, man. I appreciate it. Right on, man. Thank you for being such an inspiration, setting an example, being a leader, you know, setting an example for other leaders to be leaders, to inspire other leaders to be leaders. You know, this is kind of a, a positive feedback loop that I hope I can also contribute to and and, um, you know, you're a real, uh, motivating force for me. So, uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, I know we went a little over time, so, uh, thank Roberta for me. Thank you, Roberta. Next time in London, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take you guys out for dinner and, um, and go somewhere nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks for staying late, man. Been a real pleasure chatting with you. Uh, obviously people find you at londonreal.tv on the internet, on Instagram at the real Brian Rose and at London real TV. Uh, you've also got a Brian for mayor channel now on Instagram. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You can find it all via my Instagram. So they'll all link to the others. So yeah, all of that, you can follow all of our channels on Instagram and most of the other socials as well. Dope. All right, man. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, brother. No, thanks, man. And I just want to say just, you know, in, in closing, man, I appreciate everything you do. I know it was challenging with the lockdown, but you stayed focused. I'm so excited you guys are open again. And again, I said it before, but I'll say it again. I mean, literally, you guys are a cut above when it comes to what you do there, providing incredible ceremonies, incredible medicine, incredible integration. I can't say enough great things about you. And it's not just me. It's Dorian Yates, it's Dennis McKenna, it's Gabo Mate. They all say Soltara is the best place. So I appreciate what you do. I know you're always investing in the properties. You always keep your standards really high. 
honestly, Daniel, I'm super impressed. I, I don't think I could run your business anywhere near as good as you do, seriously. Um, and I know it's super challenging to keep everything to a high spec. So thanks for everything you do. And thanks for trusting us. And thanks for inviting us down there with open arms. And it's been great knowing you. And I really appreciate your support. And um, I don't say that a lot of, a lot of people, Daniel. You're always there for us, like seriously. You're always showing up. You're always supporting us. And um, hopefully we can always support you back. So thank you, brother. I appreciate you. And congrats on the podcast. Thank you, sir. Um, hopefully uh, we can do another something, uh, be bringing out the book maybe in Q2 of next year or so, Q1, Q2 of next year. So maybe we can jump on, have another conversation at some point All right, when man. you're mayor of London. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. All right, man. Thank you so much. Peace. The Daniel Cleland Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Daniel Cleland Podcast. We truly enjoy you sharing your time with us. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, these likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, shamanismo, curanderismo from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica, check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. All kinds of great content, nonstop, coming out, down the pike, every day, just for you. Thanks again so much for joining i appreciate it beyond words and i look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting if you want to reach out to me there's a contact form on my website danielcleland.com feel free to hit me up i read every email and try to respond to all of them thanks again much love to you and I hope we get to catch up soon. All the best.